morning we are studying the doctrine of water baptism, also found in Acts. If you remember in previous weeks when I taught, we went through a couple of sessions on Peter's sermon having to do with God's ordained means for salvation, the gospel preached, okay? God uses means. That's one of the more important concepts that you can come to and apply and understand. And what we're going to show this week, and in, in, as it's my turn to teach Sunday school weeks to come, God uses means in regard to sanctification as well. And I'll introduce this by saying that this is so important, so necessary, and may be the watershed issue that keeps us from seeker-sensitive, emergent, and everything else going on out there. And hardly anybody knows that or teaches that or even notices the sort of pietistic, works-oriented version of sanctification is taken for granted by nearly everyone, with a few exceptions. So let's pray, and then we'll get going. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can gather with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can turn our hearts to you, turn our minds to the Scriptures, and encourage one another, and understand what you want us to understand that's been revealed in Scripture. Today we ask you to help us do that with clarity of thought and word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as before, I was in Acts about how God saves people through the gospel preached. So I'll pick up a little bit of that with Acts 2.38, and then we'll go to verse 41. If you remember the chiastic structure I showed you about Peter's sermon, and as you're studying Acts, you'll notice that after Peter's sermon, then Luke started describing what happened, right? So 2.38 is still part of Peter's sermon. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice in the bigger scheme of Luke Acts, and I, it was my privilege at one time to preach all the way through Luke, and as I did so, I, I pointed out themes that will be picked up in Acts. Luke Acts is a two-volume work by the same author, Luke. And that's easy to see because it says so right in the scriptures here. And there are themes that are developed in Luke that are finding their fulfillment in Acts. And if Acts wasn't there, there would be loose narrative strands that need to be fulfilled. Now, one of the things we see very early in Luke is that the Holy Spirit comes upon people and when he does they become reliable witnesses and they speak out words about salvation and the mighty works of God whether it be Mary or Simeon or Zacharias or John the Baptist or then later Jesus who was the Holy Spirit descended upon this was a signal in Luke X that the Holy Spirit came upon somebody listened to them. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is very prominent. So here, uh, repentance, another theme in Luke X. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Repentance is part of the Great Commission. And here, um, uh, excuse me, Peter preached repentance. All right, and so then another theme you'll find in Luke two, or excuse me, Acts two thirty-eight, the forgiveness of sins. As I've pointed out many times, the term for forgiveness in the Greek is release, and this is thematic going back to Luke four. 
release from sins. That's what messianic salvation brings, is release from sins. Another theme developed in Luke, finding fulfillment in Acts. And then it says here, be baptized. Okay, so this is very important, and it's going to be the first thing Luke says that happened before we get to Acts 2.42. By the way, this is a discussion-oriented class. When I'm teaching, I want you to feel free to ask questions or make comments or state implications you see, however that would be. Brian Beers has the mic, and I'm not the least bit concerned if I don't get to the end of my PowerPoint. Okay, I... The PowerPoint doesn't have to have a beginning and an end. I want this to be discussion-oriented. So then jumping forward to 41 in order to pick up the theme baptism. So then those who had received his word were baptized. The word received here is the term dekomai with a prefix. So it would mean welcomed. It's a strong word. They didn't just decide, well, okay. Now, this is a radical idea, okay? This was the Feast of Tabernacles, or excuse me, the Feast of Pentecost. These were people that had been Jewish and keeping the feast, and they were obviously active or they wouldn't have been there. They were dedicated. They traveled to be there. Uh, It was uh, at least once in a Lifetime, a, a male Jewish believer in Yahweh would want to go to a pilgrim feast, even if it was at great expense and great difficulty and danger. And so here we have people, 3,000 it says, who believe, okay, or welcomed, they welcomed his word. As far as the ones who don't, they're going to become the source of persecution as the narrative of Acts goes on. And so when the gospel's preached, calling for repentance, offering the forgiveness of sins, and here, repent and be baptized in his case, they welcome this, even though he just had said, be saved from this perverse generation. You're going to lose your friends. You're going to lose your family. You're going to be hated. And to be baptized was to stand in the same place that Jesus did and what he commanded. And so we have the unity in the practice of the early church. And so they welcomed the word and were baptized and it says there were about 3,000, which is a, a minority, yes, but a significant number of people that were the very first members of the very first church. Does that make sense? Any comments or questions? Eric. I, I think we've both mentioned this before, but it just bears repeating. What's interesting at this Pentecost it's obviously the first one where the Holy Spirit comes upon the New Covenant community. Yes. And notice we have 3,000 people that come to eternal life. The very first Pentecost that ever occurred happens at the giving of the law. And I believe it's Exodus 32. I probably should have looked that up. I lost my Pentateuch. It fell out of my Bible, so someone else will have to look it up. But I believe it's in Exodus 32. You have, remember, the golden calf incident. And that's the first Pentecost. And what you have is 3,000 that end up perishing. So at the giving of the law, at they the first die. point, I guess 3,000 die. But at the giving of the Spirit, you have 3,000 that come to eternal they life. come alive. Yeah, and so it just shows you the profundity of Scripture. Yeah. 3228, 3,000. Thank you. That's an astute reading. Um, the, the theme in baptism is death and then life in a number of different ways. We'll see that as we go forward. And there is so much to be said about baptism. And most of what we have to say is because of false teaching and error in church history. 
all right? If you want to go astray on a doctrine from the Bible, just follow church history on water baptism and ignore everything else. Literally, to understand the biblical doctor, doctrine of baptism, you have to almost block out of your mind church history. How soon did it go astray? Immediately. Immediately. I was shocked when I first learned this. When I was a new Christian, I went to Bible college, took a summer class from my favorite teacher, Reverend Smith, and we were going to study historical theology. That's when I first started reading the Church Fathers. And he was saying immediately they had a a dispute about baptism and had to do with what, what would happen if you sinned after you were baptized. That's what he said that was the dispute. And then he went on and I raised my hand. I said, well, Reverend Smith, what did they decide? Well, they decided you'd be lost. And I gulped. I went, oh. And it, Reverend Smith says, well, Bob, I guess you and I are in trouble. <laughs> and there were people literally being baptized on their deathbed. Hope, hope you didn't die a sudden death because they were afraid they'd end up in hell. Because baptism was going to wash away their sins, and if they sinned again, then that would be it. They'd be all over. Done. Uh, baptism being a non-salvific issue, it sure is emphasized an awful lot by God. It's very important, and that's what's going to help us using this. What I'm hoping to do is to show you means of grace in a way that it is. Okay. Means of grace, baptism we're claiming is a means of grace, but that doesn't make us Lutheran. It doesn't mean, uh, there's a lot of things that that doesn't mean, but one thing it does mean is we're remembering that Christ died for sins, that he was raised, that we're buried with him, and that we're raised. And Paul brings it up in the New Testament to remind us what God did. Okay? So we're not saying it isn't important, but church history will just drive you nuts on this. Why? I don't know. But the errors about baptism were immediate. 200 A.D., 150 A.D., you just start reading immediately, they had a heightened view of baptism. And it created all kinds of issues and problems. I can tell you that for a fact. I'm quite a student of church history. I read an awful lot of it. Well, let's move forward with, uh, with this. And I want to go to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now, um, it's important when we're talking about means of grace, baptism being the first one we're going to cover, that we realize how important the ordination of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, is. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the first questions we need to ask is, did Christ ordain this? And another thing to ask is, is there a promise? One of the, one of the issues that Eric and I talk about on the radio is the promise of God. And it comes up in Galatians. I was just telling Eric, I think the ones we did last week, the second one, was the best we've done yet. I can't ever tell if anything's any good until I edit it. After the fact, every once in a while, we, we, we nail it. But um, promise is important. Faith needs an object. Faith isn't just a warm, gushy feeling that everything's okay or that there's some force in the universe. For every drop of rain that falls, the flower grows. Well, that's very nice. That's not a biblical definition of faith. Faith needs an object, and the object of our faith is God and his promises. And Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and he's a legitimate object of faith. Eric and I talked about that on the radio or on our podcast. It doesn't go out over actual radio waves. So here we have a grounding by Jesus Christ himself who ordained baptizing and who gave us a promise. And so we have, therefore, reason to proceed in faith. It's not magical. 
It's not necessarily mysterious, depending on how you want to use that term, but it is something ordained by God. So therefore, it's an ordinance. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, that would be the apostles, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Who has this authority? Jesus. I wrote an essay on post-millennialism and the so-called dominion mandate when I was in seminary. It's published on CICministry.org under scholarly. You can find it in there. And the dominion mandate is a big lie, and it's not even hard to refute. But thousands of people are following this post-millennial, we're going to take dominion over all the sinners and force them to live God's way. And so it was really a big deal in the 80s, and I was coming back again. And so that's not what he's saying. He's saying he's not saying all authority in heaven and earth is given to you. He says it's given to me. Jesus, the head of the church, who ascended into heaven. All right? So therefore, he has the authority to authorize what the church does, believes, and so on. Go, therefore, because the head of the church has thus given us our marching orders, and make disciples. Here's the imperative. There's a series. (coughs) There's three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching, one imperative, make disciples. And the imperative force of going, baptizing, teaching is derived from make disciples. I'm just telling you a little about the Greek. Of all the nations, okay, so this means all the different peoples and people groups in the whole world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's the authority, the authorization, and what we are to do, baptizing him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we've done that. I've done that. People will come along that have been part of this Jesus-only Pentecostalism, say, oh, no, it has to be the name of Jesus or you're going to go to hell. Go jump in a lake. <laughs> oh, we're baptizing <laughs> <laughs> a little pun there, you know. <laughs> well, I'm not going to listen to all of this stuff. This is what Jesus said right here. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, this is important. What we can teach as binding is what's commanded by Jesus Christ, the head of the church. We cannot make ourselves God's lawgivers. That's the most pathetic thing, and you see it everywhere. I mentioned Sunday, my sermon, and you can see this even more clearly in Colossians. The demons want to be God's lawgivers. And then so do a lot of false teachers and religious people. They want to be God's lawgivers. Jesus Christ himself is the one whose teachings are binding. And his apostles speak for him. The last one of those died somewhere around 100 A.D., there's no apostles on the earth speaking for God beyond Scripture. So the first, yes, uh, Rich, you want to make sure he gets the mic? And just putting two and two together here from so far from what you're saying, it's just as amazing to me that you're talking about the law and you're talking about feelings, both in the same type, and it is amazing how feelings are the most deadliest force known to humanity. Because... uh, well, my, my dear brother, I love him very much, and he has taken his family into this Old Testament law. He's reverted. What do they call that? Revert. There's a certain name for it, and you go back in the Old Testament law. There's kind of this Jewish-type thinking. Okay. What is that called? I, I don't There's know. a certain name for it. Legalism. Anyhow, he's gone back. That, and the first thing he said is that I've never felt closer to God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what people are looking for. And it's a failure of faith. It's a failure of faith. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and bodily sent into heaven and that he ever lives to make intercession for us and that our sins are forgiven and that he said, I'll come again 
And then we're going to see another promise here. Do we believe the promises of God or do we need to feel close to God? The whole emergent thing is to feel close to God. So you've got to have your labyrinth. That's right. You've got to have your, there was a way back 15 years ago, there was a young lady that was going down on 24th and Nicollet when I was a preacher there. And she visited one time and said, well, I'm not going to come here anymore. I'm going over to this Messianic group. I said, okay. You can tell me why. I'm not going to judge you. Oh, when I have the prayer shawl on, I feel closer to God. Now, that's a problem. It's not a problem that she's going somewhere else. It's a problem that she thinks the prayer shawl is going to make her feel close to God, and that's enough reason to make your decisions. Does, is there a promise? Now, this, let's just make that a test case. How do you know something is going to actually help you draw near to God, which is a theme, by the way, in Hebrews. What's the object of your faith? Is it Jesus Christ? Is there a command or a promise? The Jesus promise, lo, I'm with you always, and if you want to feel that way, get a prayer shawl. It's a failure of faith. We can't believe that Jesus is really at the right hand of God praying for us. We want to feel a certain way. So we go read some book called Jesus Calling. And then Jesus contradicts what he said in the Bible in this book. But we'd rather have the book. Anything that feels good. Anything that's warm and fuzzy. But the fact is, faith is grounded in the word of God the promises of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ that we know from Scripture. And feeling close to God may have some psychological benefits temporarily, but it won't get you to heaven and it won't keep you out of hell. A lot of people who feel close to God are directly on their way to hell because they won't listen to what God said. Bob, going back to this Hebrew roots thing that Rich was talking about, in Romans eleven sixteen, Paul is teaching um, about, uh, the, and, and he says the root is holy, and then he goes on, I don't have, I have it open in my Bible. He's talking about the patriarchs, right? Yeah, and then it goes uh, down a little, little lower a couple of verses and talks about, uh, the branches being built Romans, on that uh, 11, 11, starting in verse 16, and then it goes on down. 15? Yeah. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And keep going. Now the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch. And the root is holy, so are the branches, okay? Yeah. Would uh, the, would, what Rich is talking about, and would the Hebrew roots movement be misinterpreting or um, misunderstanding? Well, one thing you need to remember that this the prophecy about the salvation of Israel is yet future. Mm -hmm. And right now, if you want to see what Paul's opinion is, he says here, this is about his brethren, the Jews, Mm -hmm. Hebrew, excuse me, Romans 10, 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. He doesn't consider them saved. No. They're lost. Right, yeah. But are, is it wrong then for the Jewish people to... You know, I, the prayer shawl thing just is... Yeah, it's, <laughs> I would bad, say the prayer shawl is but, a sin against God and is yes. no better than the golden calf. Yes, absolutely. We don't That's, want to hear the words of God. They were spoken by our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Shut our ears. La, la, la. I can't hear you. But the prayer shawl, we'll have that. I know. This yeah. is wickedness and rebellion against God. Yeah. And I'll put you right under the demons as I preached yeah. last Sunday. But is there no grounds for Jewish people who now accept Christ to acknowledge where their roots are and, you know, uh, study, yeah. uh, well, study that's, the penitent, That's all fine and good. But um, I got a nice email from somebody asking about this, and it was late last night, and I thought I'd wait till today in case I was so tired I wouldn't answer cogently. 
Um, we must remember from the book of Colossians that the substance is here. And we have the direct words of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. We have the book of Hebrews. We have the book of Galatians. We have the Gospels. The substance is here, which is Christ. We can't get closer to God studying the shadow. No. The no. shadow is not going to do it for us. Yeah. Okay? So uh, a person who is a very active Jewish person already knows Passover and Judaism, but what they don't know is Messianic salvation and the forgiveness of sins. But Let's those... emphasize what's unique, not what was that's been done away with. Okay. But even Paul acknowledges... Uh, the importance of uh, of the Jewish roots when when he talks about you know all that that uh, uh, is there no importance yeah well, the importance the in, in excuse me in, in Romans eleven is that we don't be conceited right yeah. we should never think yeah. the fact that we've been shown mercy makes us superior to anybody okay superior to the Jews superior to whoever may be lost. And so there should be no arrogance. That's a warning. Okay, yeah. We should realize that there's still future promises. Let me read verse 28 on. In, um, excuse me, Romans 11. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies. Okay, there's the problem. Okay, so if being... Jewish and practicing Jewish things, which not all Jewish people do, makes you an enemy of God. Once you're converted, why do you want to go back to that? I wouldn't want to go back to what I was doing when I was an enemy of God. So just by acknowledging those things, do you think they're practicing? Well, I don't know. I'm not judging anybody's heart and mind. I'm just telling you that the siren song of destruction is come and do this, you know, Jewish roots, Torah only, why spend his time studying Romans when he could be studying Torah? No, I don't think so. You okay? Yeah. Uh, regarding the gospel, they are enemies. Well, being an enemy of God is not a good status to have. For your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. So God keeps his promises. But I don't believe that all Israel is saved till the end of the tribulation. Do you agree with me, Eric? You don't have to. And, you know, I think you hit on this topic even in uh, Galatians 3 when you said what the law, the function of the law that Paul argues is it's a pedagogos. And this boy leader. And it's not good. It's not good. It's very, very brutal. And so the Torah is designed to drive us to messianic salvation. And what Bob is saying is from Colossians, you have the substance now that is here, Jesus Christ, that the shadow is pointing to. The risk is that you go back to the shadow. Yeah, and be instance, happy with the shadow and forget the substance. Yeah. And no one who had only seen a shadow but now has a substance would want to go to the shadow. That's right. And okay, was, and I'm not against, I studied the whole Bible, and I've studied the Pentateuch, preached through it, uh, the prophets, the Psalms, all of the Old Testament. Yeah, we study everything. Yeah. But we need to be, uh, I think it's very dangerous to start practicing Jewish feasts. Because if that was such a great temptation that is called apostasy in the New Testament, what makes us think we're not going to be tempted? You know, because we have to believe what we don't see. The feast is very tangible. We see that. Peter, when you're oh, whenever sorry. you're done. Well, Bob, I was going to mention um, your last week's sermon from Galatians four. The whole idea of the stoichia when you go. Yeah, back. when I, I think first. Yeah, last week. If you if you haven't weren't here, or you want to listen to that sermon. I first saw the implications of Galatians 4 probably over well over a year ago, and it was so shocking to me, it almost took my breath away. Like, can this really be? So I went on a process for a year of looking at the Greek, the scholarly sources, the cross-references. It says what it says. I, may God help me to never tell you to believe what the Bible doesn't say, just because it's a little easier or less troublesome to us. We can't change what God said to make people happy. And we'll see that when we get 
I don't know how far I'll get today, but uh, as soon as I get a chance, I want to go through 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. You'll see the same issue there. What it says, it says. Yes, Peter. Thanks, Rich. Thank you, um, Rich. Bob, I know you've mentioned this, you and Eric, before in some of your teaching, but you alluded to the fact that the last of the apostles, probably uh, John, was was about uh, A.D. 100 or thereabouts. Or before. Or before. And um, from the standpoint of Scripture, you've explained uh, what qualifies as an apostle. Okay. For those of us who have heard, and you alluded to this in some of the teaching as far as emergent and postmodern, why can't there be modern-day apostles? Or because they prophets? haven't seen the resurrected Christ. Okay. They haven't been personally appointed by Christ. They haven't been with him from the beginning and taught by Christ in the flesh for three years. And we've taught on that. Eric's got some good material on that. Those are requirements of an apostle. Right. Okay. Um, they and, haven't done that. So and they, they don't, don't they have qualify. special revelation. Like they're deviating from scripture. A lot of these uh, postmodern and emergent yes, philosophers. Very much so. Now, See, the subjective isn't, is our enemy. It's, it's the realm of deception. Right. Okay? I can go off into solitude, and I said, okay, I think God just spoke to me. How do I know? Jesus Christ came in the flesh. It says in First John, that which we've heard, that which we've seen, that which we touch, which our hands have handled, that word of life which we declare to you. John wasn't saying, well, I went out in a, Sycamore Grove, and I felt close to God, and this is what I came up with. So there is the issue. Have you seen the resurrected Christ? Paul did, but one is born out of time. So what you're saying, Bob, is that these teachers, their teaching is subjective, not objective. Exactly. Correct? In other words, they're doing their own interpretation. They could be going into sounds of silence or meditation and claiming to hear... God, rather than the revealed word, his scripture. Yeah, you got it. That's exactly the issue. And it's interesting what they hear when they do hear. Always mysticism. Well, let me make a little progress here. Okay, go ahead, Norm. No, we don't have to make progress. This is all progress. Go ahead, Norm. Well, uh, getting back to, uh, you're talking about going back to the Old Testament and trying to keep the laws and live like the Jews did. But, you know, you look in 2 Timothy 3.16, and it talks about all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So I think primarily the Scripture is talking about there is Old Testament. So yes. there is a proper use. Could you comment on what is the proper use of the Old Testament? Well, uh, the, the Old Testament points to Christ and the promise of Messianic salvation. Okay. And uh, I have no problem teaching and preaching through the Old Testament because I've done it. However, we can't do so without keeping in mind what's the substance and what's the shadow. And it's pointing to Christ. And Paul is saying in Galatians in chapter 5 that if you go back to the Old Covenant practices, you've literally, quote, Fallen from grace. And in the book of Hebrews, I love the book of Hebrews. We did a whole series on the rate, and it's on our CICministry.org site. If you want to learn Hebrews, you can go through that. We went through it verse by verse by verse by verse through Hebrews. And it explains this so much. And so, yes, it's good for us to understand the scapegoat that goes out into the wilderness and doesn't come back. But if we can't figure out the expiation that's offered through Christ, all we have is the scapegoat, then according to Hebrews, we've got to do it next year, and a year after that, and a year after that. And nowadays, the animal rights people will get after you. <laughs> okay? And so it's not mission impossible, but well, yeah, we need the guidance of the new covenant to help us understand it. Yes? I just wanted to backtrack just a little bit on the... Uh, those that claim to be apostles today, the biggest of all, of course, is the Pope. 
Yeah, the Pope claims to be the apostle of God. And if you want to see a lot of good material about what's wrong with that, just read Luther. Uh, he, He was very colorful. Okay, so let's get back to the baptism here. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now notice all that he commanded them, the apostles, is binding and can be taught to the church. And how we have access to all that Jesus commanded the apostles is through the New Testament scriptures. All right? And if the New Covenant apostles interpret a passage from the Old, that's the correct one. That's where subjectivism leads people astray. They They don't believe that. But most passages are not that difficult to understand. We may not like them, but then notice the promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, the claim in the New Testament is Jesus bodily ascended into heaven. The promise given here with this command to baptize is that he's with us always. So that means believing the truth about Jesus Christ, that he bodily ascended to heaven and makes intercession for us, is that even in absence, he's with us. One of the important and necessary aspects of means of grace is to remind us that Jesus is with us. Why do we need to be reminded? Because the world is bombarding our minds with sin, garbage, lies, perversions, everything wicked. Politics, as somebody say. Hold your nose, vote, and get out of there. Uh, Now, the fact is, knowing that Jesus is with us, though we don't see him, we believe in him, according to Peter, is a great comfort to us. That he's coming again is a great comfort to us. Yes. And as we get to some stage in life where we may be facing death, it becomes ultimately comforting that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now he's with us as the head of the church, as we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we have ordinances, means of grace, whereby we remember his death until he comes. We remember his resurrection. We remember his promises. We believe his promises. We encourage one another. We gather together under the means of grace. This concept, which is nearly absent from the church in the biggest sense of the word, is necessary, and we need to distinguish between ordinances and practices that in and of themselves may look rather inauspicious, but because they've been ordained by Jesus and given with a promise and a command, they become God's ordinance. I was cleaning up. I didn't get too carried away with the cleaning up idea, as Eric knows. It's not my strong suit. But I was digging around in a pile, and I found this modern reformation that came here July, August 2013, so it's not that old. Michael Horton, and it's rebuking spiritual formation, and he calls it spiritual reformation. Spiritual formation is the enemy of means of grace. Spiritual formation is what liberalism has, is what emergent has, is what the secret church has. It's what everybody has. Spiritual formation does not have to be ordained by Jesus Christ in any regard. The main teachers of it, uh, well, Richard Foster, Dallas Willard is no longer on the scene of history, but it was Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, and they're inspired by the monks and nuns of the medieval Catholic Church. And they teach, go out into solitude and there you'll meet God. Okay, what's wrong with that? Jesus said, commanding them, commanding them, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. That's what I was trying to say. He didn't command us to go out into solitude and silence. He didn't command us to practice astrology. He didn't command us to walk the labyrinth. And 
He didn't command us to do all this stuff that's done to hire psychologists and psychiatrists to try to make us figure out something on our bumpy ride through life. The word of God changes us. Yes, Luann. Well, and all I wanted to add with that is because, you know, it's just so dangerous because, and you guys can address it certainly more, but, you know, this, all of your accredited um, biological seminaries have to require spiritual formation. So you think about, like, when these pastors come out having to have had to take that curriculum and now they're going to go into the churches and teach the children. It's just, I mean, how thick and deep it is, it's just abhorrent. It's all there is. It's literally all there is. And when you mention means they're great, people say, oh, that's Lutheran, and they, and they shut their ears and they don't want to hear one more word. All those nasty Lutherans. And here's um, Horton, who's Reformed, teaching it. And I agree with this particular article. I wouldn't call myself reformed in a fuller sense because of issues such as infant baptism and amillennialism. But in here, he's rightly showing the difference. Let me just read a little bit of this. Know what you believe. Here's what he says. Evangelical piety often focuses on means of commitment that lead to grace where Reformation piety focuses on means of grace that produce commitment. They got the cart in front of the horse. Obey God, and then you'll find grace. That's what's said by Rome, and that's what echoes across the evangelical landscape. As if we, without any help from God, or grace from God, or anything else, or command, or promise can do whatever seems pious in our own minds. That's the emergent. That's their missional. You see somebody doing something looks like a good thing to do. Well, then that's, you saw what God's doing. Just go join it. No command from God. No clear teaching from Scripture. That's just what we're going to do. We're gonna, God's going to put his imprimatur on what I decide to do. And I'm not speaking out of turn here. I went to their top conference and heard them teaching this. What is this medieval evangelical mysticism? Here's what's emphasized, according to Horton. Private prayer, not, not wrong to have private prayer, but means of grace is public prayer. So what we do gathered together as the church. Fasting, not commanded as a means of grace anywhere in the New Testament. Silence, not commanded, not promised. Contemplation, meaning something different than we would think. And solitude, not commanded. So we go off on our own and invent our own spirituality and expect God to honor it. Ignoring what Jesus Christ said to his own church, who's the head of the church? Richard Foster or Jesus Christ? And I've engaged some of these people. I managed to get through to Willard while he was still alive, not personally talk to him, but to his head guy. Dallas Willard teach whatever he wants. He didn't. He says, "Oh, we've heard all that before. We want to listen to it." He says, "The kingdom of God is within you, so therefore you do a journey inward to find the kingdom." That's real common. And I'm with you always. So we have a command and we have a promise. Let's go to First Corinthians one. We can probably cover this material and continue to have our discussion. Thank you. By the way, I love the discussion part. It's one of the things that I miss, and hopefully we can get it added in here. 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 15. Well, there were a lot of problems in Corinth, not the, we, the least of which was sectarianism. Okay? They wanted to define spirituality so that some of them were the elite ones, the better ones, the preferable ones. If you want to read a fantastic commentary... On 1 Corinthians, Eric and I will both fully endorse Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians. For me, in the 80s, when that was first published, I got a copy of it within a year after it was published, was life-changing. In fact, it delivered me from Watchman Nee, and I am very thankful for that. I was on a quest to be a higher-order Christian and failed miserably. And pretty soon I realized the whole thing was a big lie. 
Now let's look at this. 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 15. Has Christ been divided? Rhetorical question. What's the implied answer? No. No. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Well, no. Paul's still alive, right? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would of you would say you were baptized in my name. Now, let's get this right. There's a lot of goofy teaching out there that doesn't even try to understand this according to authorial intent. For example, Les Feldig and his followers say this is proof that there is no such thing as water baptism in the Pauline church. Well, if there was no such thing, why did he baptize two people? Well, he hadn't got the whole message yet. It's just, it's pathetic. And the fact is, that's not Paul's concern. Eric and I teach, as a hermeneutic, authorial intent. The reader doesn't determine the meaning of the scripture, the author does. Was Paul trying to say what? Well, he's addressing their carnal-minded, as he calls it later, attitude, that you gain higher status based on who baptized you. Ah, Paul is a great guy. If he baptized me, I'm, you know, I've heard this. We were talking earlier about the prayer shawl. Oh, I'm closer to God. I can feel it. Uh, I've heard people say, I was in Israel and baptized in the Jordan River. Well, now you're really baptized. let's give an illustration and Eric help me if my memory is who was the guy the time I think it was Elisha who came and wanted to be healed and was told to go bathe in the Jordan Naaman Naaman that's right and he was told that by an ordained and authorized prophet of God right so God told him Uh, Okay, and so here is a good illustration of needs of grace. I've used this before. It's not true now, but it was true for him because he had a prophet of God that told him, right? Okay, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cleansed. Well, he was offended. Well, I come from, I'm somebody important and I come here And I'm going to talk to the prophet of God, and they don't have anything better than that dirty river. we got better water than that where I'm from. Thus to you. I'm paraphrasing on his way to go home. (laughs) And his servant said, my master, if he told you some grand thing to do, would you have done it? Oh, yeah. Well, why won't you do the simple thing the prophet told you to do? And he went and was cleansed. Now, why is that important? Because God's authorized spokesperson, the prophet of God, gave him a command with a promise. Do this and you will be cleansed. The doing of it was not some extraordinary moral accomplishment. Anybody could have gone and done it that was ambulatory. That means walking around, right? So you can go do it. That's what means of grace is like. Please listen. This is so important for our fledgling congregation. Means of grace are given to the entire church by Jesus Christ through his authorized apostles, just like Elisha speaking to Naaman. And it's a command that comes with a promise. And it's designed to be something that we can each do under normal circumstances. In other words, you don't have to have some moral superiority to other Christians first, and then you'll be able to do means of grace. To break bread, and to remember the Lord's death until he comes, and to gather with the saints and pray, and to be baptized, and to sit under the teaching of the word of God in faith, 
do not require some a priori hyper superior spirituality. You don't have to be the Dalai Lama. You don't have to be Brian McLaren. You don't have to be some person who achieves some great and glorious thing. You simply have to believe. What was the problem when Naaman was going to walk off with his leprosy? He didn't want to believe. He didn't want to obey. Do this in remembrance of me. Eric had a little incident like that where he was being rebuked for having a really rotten sermon. And, and he had preached on that passage, do this in remembrance of me. And the retort to Eric was, well, what do we do? Uh, do this in remembrance of me. It's almost exactly like Balaam. Or not Balaam, Naaman. Well, I'm not going to go dip into Jordan. That's absurd. If this guy doesn't, he should bring out some gold and wave it over my head and say some secret formula or something. We don't want to obey. Now it's in the imperative. Do this. Well, come on. Christians have been doing that. Baloney. Come up with something better. You know what that is? It's rebellion against God. Just as much as if Naaman had gone on home with his leprosy and said, I won't listen to the prophet of God. Jesus is the head of the church. He said, do this. How can we turn around and say, well, I don't know what to do? Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What's wrong with that? Eric. Yeah, I was going to just mention, you hit this on your first application, I think, last week. But the means of grace is about what God has done for us. And so think about all these other means and these spiritual functions. If they want you to walk a labyrinth, the implication is, is you're not close enough to God. And so think about 2 Corinthians 11. God, or Paul, warns that we would have a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. Well, a Jesus who dies and doesn't make you close enough to God is a different Jesus. And so if you think you can get closer by doing some other practice, then you have a different Jesus. He's yeah. not sufficient. So yeah. the means of grace, ironically, are about remembering what Christ has done. And the reason Bob is mentioning the critique of my sermon from this other church was because they wanted to focus on what we do. It wasn't sufficient to remember what Christ has done so that we may be sanctified. The analogy right. that Bob gave earlier, they had the cart before the horse. Exactly. And that's what Horton is saying about pop modern evangelicalism. Here's what uh, Horton says. In union with Christ, we receive justification and sanctification as gifts. There isn't one gift, justification, says Horton, and then some supposedly higher gift, sanctification, reserved for those who experience a second blessing. So you don't have a higher class of Christians who had an experience or an insight that us drones never thought of, And they're the elite. This is evangelicalism. There is hardly a single evangelical denomination that doesn't believe in some higher order pietistic version of spirituality. Cross the board. Try to find one that's not. I'm quite a student of church history. It goes back to about 1870. This Keswick holiness, the higher you know, the Wesleyan perfectionism and so on and so forth, you'll find that at the root of almost every denomination. Because woe unto us if all we are is Christians. All we have is Christ. All we know is justification. All we have is the free gift of salvation and sanctification as a promise from God through the means he's ordained. And I'm committed, and I know Eric is, and he's younger and healthier, but nobody knows these things. As long as I'm alive and I have voice, this topic shall be front and forward. Why? Because who's teaching it? Where did we end up? How do we end up with all this stuff? How can we have mega churches with 13 pastors and 12 of them are marriage and family therapy counselors? They don't have means of grace. So Paul doesn't want them to say they're baptized by Paul. They're missing the point, as they do later in 1 Corinthians. 
Now he says in verses 16 and 17, Now I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, this doesn't imply that baptizing isn't part of the Great Commission. But Paul, in particular, was sent to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But here's the point Paul's making, and this arose in church history. And I'm not saying I won't deal with church history. I'm very well prepared to do so. But the issue arose, what if you were baptized by somebody who later turned out to be a heretic? Okay, so Paul went and preached the right gospel, and they believed. Who actually goes down in the water with the person being baptized from the church is immaterial. That's what he means. And given the fact that they're carnal-minded about all of this, about well, I have higher status because the Apostle Paul baptized me, or I was baptized in a Jordan, not some mud puddle in Minnesota. Uh, that doesn't mean anything. And so during the Donatist controversy a few hundred years later, the issue was if this, well, they already had a priesthood, which was wicked, because we believe in the priesthood of every believer, but if an unrighteous or ungodly priest baptized you, at the time, he didn't know he was unrighteous, ungodly. Later, he found out that he was. Do you need to go be rebaptized? Because it wouldn't be any good with this guy that did it. And the answer in the scripture, is, if you study this carefully, is that it doesn't matter. It's your faith was that Jesus Christ was dead, buried, and raised on the third day, and he commanded this. And he promised to be with us. And so it's our belief in Jesus Christ, not the the moral qualities of the person who dips you under the water. Either that's obvious or I, I think it is. So not in cleverness of speech. Paul wasn't a rhetorician who was able to I got about one minute here. So that the cross of Christ would not be made void. There's no rhetoric that enhances the faith. Now, I would certainly love to be the best preacher that didn't stumble and fumble and cough and hack and, and all these things. And by the time I get done editing these sermons, nobody does. Okay? I can take a sow's ear and turn it into a silk purse as the farmers used to say. But that's ultimately not what it depends on. Okay? And I do believe that God gifts people for what they called him to do. And if he calls us to preach, he'll give us words to do so. But I'm, I'm saying that means of grace are ordained by God through his son, Jesus Christ. They're provided for all of the saints, not just some higher order version of them. They're revealed in Scripture. They come with a command, and they come with a promise. That's what we see in Matthew 28. That's what we'll see in 1 Corinthians 11 when we get to that. And that's what we see throughout the New Testament. The Lord's Supper, fellowship, breaking bread, so on, are provided for the church that we might grow. And we might think, Oh, come on. How can I? I need somebody to give me five steps about what to do. I can't possibly grow by sitting and studying the Bible. We already know. Here's how you know a pietist. Are you listening, Rick Warren? We've already know more than we put into practice, so there's no use doing a Bible study. Aha, uh -huh, Rick Warren said that in Purpose Driven Life. So he conceives that the Christian life is a works. You do this, do this, do this, do this. And if exhausted everything that you already know, then you can study a little more Bible. This is not a manual about how to put together a garage door opener. Ron helped me. To, Ron did that, and I watched over his shoulder. But, okay. In that case, with a manual, and that's what they call it, a user's manual, you've got to follow the instructions. 
That's not what we're seeing here. We're to believe what the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he changes us. The 12 marriage and family therapy therapists at the mega church, they don't, uh, what do they have? Having studied with a lot of those students, I know one thing, they don't know the Bible. Some told me they had never read it. They just want a therapy degree. Human engineering is going to change people, they think. No. Well, how do you have a good marriage? How do you stay married? I've so far made it 41 years. The way you stay married is through the fear of God. Okay? No, that's how she said. No, I, never mind. Every single person, every single marriage has got two incompatible sinners, hopefully saved by grace. And we stick with one another because there's a type going on of Christ in a church, and that's more important than this therapist saying, try this, try that, try the other thing. Try staying together and not running away, and amazingly, after so many years, it gets a lot better. But if it doesn't, don't worry. The rapture will solve the problem. (laughs) But I hope that we enjoy being married here now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We know that your word is true. And as we open the scriptures together, as we have today in Acts and in Matthew and in 1 Corinthians, May this concept sink into our hearts and minds so that we might not follow after the folly that we see all around us of human works and mysticism. But may we believe and obey what you said, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.